Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Namihi nui. Hi there. I'm Alison Balance, and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. 70% of all new pharmaceuticals come from so-called natural products, chemicals produced by living things which have been repurposed as medicines. But how do scientists go about finding these chemicals and figuring out what they do? William Ray talks to Michelle Princip from Waikato University. Michelle was named one of the world's most influential scientific minds of 2015 by Thomson Reuters for her work in organic chemistry. A natural product sounds a bit like something you'd read on the side of a shampoo bottle. But if you're talking to a chemist, the phrase has a very specific meaning. Secondary metabolites or natural products are molecules that are made or compounds that are made by an organism that aren't, as far as we know, directly necessary for life. So something like snake venom would be an example of that. Yes, so they're produced specifically by a type of organism for some other reason, and often we don't know what the reason is. This is Dr Michelle Princip. She's a professor of organic chemistry at Waikato University. You were, were named one of the most influential scientists in your category, and you're rolling your eyes as I say, say this. But I am. Was that, was that quite nice? It was nice. It was nice, yes. <laughs> Natural products or secondary metabolites might sound a bit esoteric at first, but Dr Princip says they're quite literally lifesavers. About 70% of all the pharmaceuticals in use today are either natural products directly or derived or inspired by natural products. So they're the best source of inspiration out there um, for molecules that can be useful to us. Nature's got a lot more imagination than chemists. And you look at two types of organisms in particular. You look at um, cyanobacteria, and I don't know how to pronounce the second one. I'm going to guess bryozoans. Pretty good. Yeah, bryozoans. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. They're They're the two types of organisms I like to focus on, though I do look at others as well. Cyanobacteria are a type of bacteria which photosynthesize. They're often responsible for toxic blooms in lakes and rivers. Bryozoans are a very weird kind of animal. In a lot of ways, they're similar to corals. The individual animals are microscopic, usually smaller than a millimetre across. And just like corals, they live in colonies made up of millions of individual animals and filter food out of the water using tentacles. Some of them look like delicate, colourful lace. Others basically look like giant balls of snot. But one thing bryozoans and cyanobacteria have in common is they produce a lot of those natural products. There are quite good reasons for that. When you look at how they live, their lifestyle, they can't move, so can't swim away from a potential predator. They're competing heavily for space and nutrients. They don't have an immune system because they're too primitive. It makes sense that they have some sort of chemical defence to compete well in that environment. It sort of seems surprising in one way that sort of chemicals which are produced by these organisms would have applications outside of their immediate survival needs. 
And that's sometimes what people say. They might say, oh, um, why do you look at marine organisms for anti-cancer compounds because marine organisms don't get cancer? But um, the point is that they provoke some sort of response in another organism, and that's a chemical response. So the fact that they can um, stimulate another organism to produce chemicals or not produce chemicals, often it's related to the processes within that organism. And of course, if it's something like cellular growth, that's really important in something like cancer. But I mean, how do you know what you're looking for? How do you sort of link up your sort of surprising chemicals, which you don't quite know necessarily exactly what they do with the particular application which cancer researchers are looking for or any other disease? We tend to start with the biological assay. So we tend to get an organism, extract it, and then test that extract against whichever biological process we're interested in. So let's say if it's um, anti-cancer, we would test it against a line of cancer cells and see if it had any anti-cancer activity. We would then just start to isolate the chemicals, and at each step we would test that activity again so that hopefully we're isolating the chemical or chemicals responsible for that activity. And then obviously from there it's a very long process until something becomes an actual medicine. Most times, of course, it doesn't. You know, the hit rate is actually very low. But having said that, still 70% of pharmaceuticals are based on natural products or natural product derived. So it's still the best source of pharmas, potential pharmaceuticals. Have you had, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but have you had much success in sort of getting to that point where something that you've discovered has made it all the way to being a, um, a medicine? Um, no, but we've had some compounds that we found in Abriazoan go all the way to in vivo testing, which is testing um, in animals. And, but at that point, unfortunately, they um, didn't work in vivo. And that's the huge barrier for most of any drugs really, is that it's all very well um, for a compound to be able to kill cells, like just a cell line of tumour cells. But once you impose metabolism on that, you've got many different cell types. You've got things like the compound has to get to the site of action. It becomes very, very complicated. The compound might be deactivated by the organism's metabolism. So um, that's probably the biggest barrier. I remember a great cartoon I saw that was about that. It was sort of like, remember any time someone tells you that um, a particular chemical kills cancer cells in a Petri dish, dish so does a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. But, you know, the fact that it is capable of killing the cells in the Petri dish tells you that there's potential there. You've just got to realise how to harness it. Natural products aren't just useful in human diseases. Dr Michelle Princep is also working on a project using chemicals from marine algae to fight the kiwifruit vine killing disease PSA. It was an idea that a group of us came up with. Um, this is scientists at University of Waikato and at Plant and Food Research looking at organisms from the marine environment and applying perhaps some of the bioactivity observed there to the terrestrial environment. The theory being that organisms in the terrestrial environment have probably not encountered these compounds before and therefore are less likely perhaps to develop resistance or much slower to develop resistance to them if they work against the PSA. To put it another way, imagine PSA is a championship fighter and its opponents are the chemicals used to treat it. If you keep using a chemical derived only from 
terrestrial organisms, it's like you're putting opponents in the ring who are all boxers. They might fight differently, but they're all relatively similar, so PSA can learn to adapt. Maybe it gets knocked out a few times at first, but eventually it adapts to cope. Maybe the way to beat PSA is to find an opponent who fights totally differently. To do this, you go a long, long way away from PSA's hometown on land and find some chemicals produced by organisms in the sea. Now it's like someone who's been boxing for 20 years suddenly has to fight a person with a black belt in karate for the very first time. It's a completely different style of fighting, and PSA can't figure out how to deal with it, or at least it takes a lot longer until it evolves a strategy to fight back. So how far along are we towards finding our metaphorical karate black belt to take down PSA? We've got some species that we're interested in looking at. I can't say too much because it is commercially sensitive, but um, it is going pretty well at the moment in terms of we've got some good strong leads. This might sound like quite a frustrating line of work, spending years testing, distilling and retesting chemicals and then having to get past the even bigger hurdles of in vivo tests and finally human clinical trials. But before you even start, there's another challenge. You have to find the organisms which produce these chemicals. I'm very dependent on others who do the collecting for me who have a better eye than I do, certainly underwater. But I also have species that I know that we want to look at based on either their relationship to species we've looked at in the past or there are species that we've looked at in the past that we want to go back to for some reason. And what kind of, I mean, I, I get that this isn't what you do, but what, what kind of things are they looking for? Like what, what sort of makes you sit up and go, oh, that's an interesting bryozoan? Um, certainly novelty, so something they haven't seen before perhaps. Um, although that's probably less likely if you go into the same environment over and over again. Interactions, like we're quite interested at the moment and there's this type of organism called a nudibranch or a sea slug and we've um, noticed that there's a certain species that tends to feed on a certain bryozoan, so that sort of thing. These organisms are particularly good at sequestering or um, capturing the chemicals from their diet and using them in their own defence, so there's probably a reason why it wants to feed on this particular organism. Sort of like monarch butterflies, their caterpillars feed on swan plants, so they're poisonous. Exactly, exactly. So they've learnt to tolerate the chemicals in their own bodies, but they can use them in their defence. Dr Princip says that human influence on the environment is only making this line of work more difficult. I don't think people go out and harvest them for any reason, um, but I think the issue is maybe climate change to a certain extent. For example, one of the species that we particularly wanted to recollect over in Tauranga this summer, apparently it was a really odd summer in Tauranga. The water temperature, it was great for swimmers, the water temperature was maybe three degrees hotter than normal and they had a lot of storm surges as well. And these organisms um, live on rocks, so I think a lot of the storm surges maybe washed some of them away, but also the warmer water for our particular species perhaps didn't suit it. So I'm just concerned that the changing temperatures conditions are changing so therefore the species that are present are changing and that's quite a concern for us. Thanks Michelle. That was chemist Michelle Princip from Waikato University and that story was produced by William Ray. Cheers William. 
I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ National on the 14th of June 2018. Our webpage is rnz.co.nz/ourchangingworld, and it's chock full of audio, features, and useful links. You can also sign up for our weekly email newsletter there. We are available as a podcast in all the usual places. And if you've got a moment to rate and review us on your favourite podcast app, then please and thank you.